Hey everybody, Darcy here. I just wanted to do a short introduction to these next few episodes. Um, the Dyatlov Pass is the topic of the discussions, and it's one of my favorite mysteries. We had a lot of people send in suggestions and write in to cover these episodes, so me and Scones decided to put them out for you guys. This is the first time we actually ever recorded for the podcast. This discussion went on for about three hours. I've edited up three about hour-long episodes. These episodes might be a little uh, rougher and a little less polished, and we were still kind of figuring out what we were going to do and what the times were, but we think uh, you guys will enjoy these deep dives into the Dyatlov Pass. It's a little bit of a departure from our standard 30-minute-ish episode, but we think you guys will you'll enjoy it. Let us know if you like this. Uh, we'll see if we can do uh, maybe some more deep dives in the future. And keep sending in suggestions. Keep listening to the podcast. Tell your friends. We appreciate it. And have a good Monday. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Monday Morning Macabre Podcast. I am your host, Darcy. I'm here with your other host, Scuns. Hello, everyone. How are you, my sweet boy? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. It's very strange to have an intro, and it feels weird to be... This is the first episode. ...structured. It doesn't feel normal. We're uh, doing great. <laughs> so far. Off to a 100% start. So this is a podcast where we talk about all things spooky, creepy weird unexplainable unexplained strange Macabre, even you might say that i'd go so far as to say that <laughs> etc i guess the, the format for i should explain this in the first episode is that each week either scones or i will present uh some kind of strange or creepy or macabre event or happening or usually in a historical context from uh looking at either primary or secondary sources of a I guess we'll say true event. We're not just right. saying stories or yeah, yeah. This isn't like, like Marty. Fiction. I'm not gonna. Yeah, we're not gonna read them. <laughs> Stephen King. No. Yeah. So, and the other individual who has not done the research has no idea what it's going to be that week. None. Therefore, they get to kind of act as a conduit for the audience to to kind of figure to ask questions, live vicariously through them, me, you, this episode, <laughs> you, this episode. With that said, we might as well get into it. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. We're going to be talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident. Now, you know zero about this, right? I know um, it took me a while, but I know how to spell it. <laughs> you look, and managed to it. figure out where that Y goes? Yeah, there's a lot of consonants um, in this language. What language is this? This, this, this is Russian. So this is yeah. Eastern Europe. This is a, a thing that happened in January of 19... January to February, I should say, of 1959 in the Ural Mountains over in Eastern Russia. So we're going, it's basically the like entry. Oh wait, Eastern Russia, like the, it's, it's, the, like, it's like the entry where nothing Siberia. is. It's, wow. yeah, it's right before nothing. Okay. And there's a lot of nothing in Russia. It's like the littlest bit of something mm -hmm. and then nothing. So 1959, group of hikers. Cold War is in full swing. Cold War is in full swing. This is about six years after the fall of Stalin, I believe. 
I think it was 53. I, I'll buy it. <laughs> I, I'm going to say 53 and then don't fact check that. Um, no one fact checked that. <laughs> nobody fact checked this. And I read a book called Dead Mountain by Donnie Iker. Donnie Iker. I actually read a book. Donnie that's how e. That's how goddamn ready I am. <sighs> I know what I'm doing. He's so ready. He feels like swearing. So ready. I feel like editing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... And in his book, he actually has a good brief summary that I'm going to read to you because Ooh. it does a good job of kind of giving you, getting you into the that mood, that, that spooky mood. Like a bedtime story. Yeah, exactly. you were like a parent that's a psychopath. Here we go. This is from Donnie Ecker's Dead Mountain. The bare facts were these. In the early winter months of 1959, a group of students and recent graduates from the Ural Polytechnic Institute departed from the city of Sverdlovsk on an expedition to the Otorten Mountains in the northern Urals. Um, all members of the group were experienced in lengthy ski tours and mountain expeditions, but given the time of year, their route was estimated to be of the highest difficulty, a designation of grade three. Ten days into the trip, on the 1st of February, the hikers set up camp for the night on the eastern slope of the Halachal Mountain. That evening, an unknown incident occurred, sending the hikers fleeing from their tent into the darkness and piercing cold. Nearly three weeks later, after the group failed to return home, government authorities dispatched a search and rescue team. The team discovered the tent, but found no initial signs of the hikers. Their bodies were eventually found roughly a mile away from the campsite in separate locations, half-dressed in sub-zero temperatures. Some were found face down in the snow, others in the fetal position, and some in a ravine clutching one another. Nearly all were without their shoes." After the bodies were transported back to civilization, the forensic analysis proved baffling. While six of the nine had perished of hypothermia, the remaining three had died from brutal injuries, including a skull fracture. According to the case files, one of the victims was missing her tongue. And when the victim's clothing was tested for contaminants, a radiologist determined certain articles of, con of clothing contained abnormal levels of radiation. So, there's a lot to dissect. Yeah, that's, let's unpack it. So... What I really like about this, like, event and this weird mystery is that, like, A, it's unsolved. So we're not going to have a... It's not going to tie up nicely in a bow at the end. I'm going to be very unsatisfied. You're going to be so unsatisfied, and that's a Darce guarantee. <laughs> so at the end of it, it's, it's like nobody knows what happens, and there's just so many theories, and they're all pretty interesting, and it runs the gambit of, like weird and creepy and like is it a conspiracy is it a yeti is it a ufo is it a missile launch is i'm on a... board with yeti <laughs> yeah okay so your top one right now is yeti easily okay so that's what i that's why i was like oh i want to do this one first because it like really covers such a crazy variety of like potential weird shit that's good and it's funny because like if you're a cynic this story doesn't sound all that crazy kids take a hard ski route right and then something goes wrong. And then, but then when you get into like the really specifics of it, it's yeah. Oh, we'll get a into lot the specifics. could have happened. Yeah, and you're gonna be like, uh, what? So let's uh, let's start. I think the best way to explain it is to start from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to be looking. I should say I'm going to be looking along on our website www.mondaymorningmacabre.com. And we have a, uh, with our first episode, we have a note section where yeah, we have some pictures notes. that were, yep. um, a little collage of different photos taken. The hikers had, investigators? no, the hikers had their cameras with them. This is another oh, so part they were of the recovered. Story. So they recovered the hikers cameras 
and all of the photos on there are either pictures from the cameras or mock-ups made by the investigation team after the fact. So, with that said, we start... Um, I actually have the timeline. So, January 24th, I believe, is the... Let me double-check that. Yep. Oh, okay. January 23rd. 23rd. January 23rd, you got... Pretty cold in the it, Northern Hemisphere. It's Eastern Russia in winter, and they're like, y'all want to climb a mountain? Like, yeah, that's, a lot that's of what bad you stuff do. on that ski road. Yeah, that's what you do in 1959 in Russia, apparently, is you're just like, let's... Let's go climb Let's a mountain in the like insane cold. It's kind of easy to think about this group as like a movie, and the top build guy is Igor Dyatlov, right? He is the head of the group. He's the guy. Basically, he was like famous at the school's hiking club. He was like the elite. Like he had the technical knowledge, and he was like a good leader. And everybody wanted to be in his hiking group. Popular dude. Yeah, he was. I'm looking at him right now. He's a pretty young looking guy. Yeah, young. How old are they? They were college students, so like 23, 24, like 22 in there. So they're all between like 19 to 23. Yeah, so he he was like varsity jacket guy, like walking around. Well, it's Russia, so he skied mountains. Yeah, so that's that's the (laughs) the quarterback. Exactly. He had the whole elite guy you want to be around vibe. Right. Hot shit. Yeah, basically. And so he was studying um, engineering at UPI. Your, your old Polytechnic Institute. Basically, one of the reasons people wanted to be with, like, be on his hiking team was so bad was that despite the official Soviet ban on shortwave radio transmissions during the Cold War, uh, he outfitted these like radio panels and made homemade like shortwave radios that he would take with him. So like this dude knew how to make like walkie talkies, illegal walkie talkies. Yeah, he was contraband making- <laughs> walkie talkies. <laughs> exactly, he was making walkie talkies. That's amazing. And was like bringing them on hiking routes, and it's obviously super useful when you're in Russia and it's like snow and you can't see anything, and you can be able to communicate that way. So everyone was like, "This dude is super." He knows what's up. Yeah. All the other kids just had two cups with a string. <laughs> yeah, they were just like, they had two cups. And they were passing back and forth through the snow, trying to talk. Yeah, to each other. really hard in the winter. Not not <laughs> easy, especially when this they're white cups, and you're just like, Son of a, it's like <laughs> styrofoam. We should have thought of this ahead of time. But so yeah, they he knew he knew all the engineering you need. And he was the guy, right? He's top build cast member of this, if this were a movie, right? He's the head. Mm-hmm. Main character. Next, we've got Zenaida Kolmogorova. She was also a radio engineering student. All her friends called her Zena instead of Zenaida. Warrior princess. Yeah, so <laughs> she was Zena warrior princess, basically. I mean, um, so she was regarded as lively and bright and always ready with an amusing remark or engaging story. She was the type of girl who drew admiration wherever she went. Word on the street is that like several of the dudes in this group had, were like crushing hard on Xena. She was the girl everyone wanted to be like. Ooh. I'm looking at the group right now. It's 10 people. Um, yep. Only two of them are girls. <laughs> That's right. There's only two girls. Sorry, Ludmila Dubinina. You lost out to Zena. <laughs> Zena was the, the popular girl. Yeah, she was the popular one. <laughs> we're about yeah, to get a 50, to... Yeah, 50 shot. Yeah. Uh, so now we're getting to Luda. Like you said, Ludmila Dubinina, or Luda. Uh, she was the other girl, as you've mentioned. <laughs> she was 20 years old and the youngest of the group. Okay. Now, here's where she's kind of a huge badass. She was a student of construction industry economics and was a serious person. So... She didn't fuck around. No, she did not. Oh, wait, can I say that? What, fuck around? Yeah, fuck around. Can we say fuck around? Uh, fuck around. 
I mean, we did, <laughs> and we are. All right, let's fuck around. Okay, keep right, going. So Luda was fucking around. So she was fucking. Around. She, no, she doesn't fuck around. She's yeah. She is not I'm listening. Yes. To to f. Why would I even say <laughs> this point? No, he said like. Okay. Anyway, she was not one to do that. She was a very serious person, but she was strong and she was like very strong willed. And there was a previous hiking trip that they went on where she got shot in the leg after a companion mishandled a hunting rifle and she had to be carried out of Siberia's eastern Cyan Mountains over 50 miles of rugged terrain and she was just like like making jokes cracking jokes and like hanging out the whole time as they like as she like got out of this place with like a gunshot wound to her leg you could give me robotic legs and i would never walk 50 miles in my entire life insane she like yeah so she was a tough uh cookie right so we got igor zina yeah Yeah, igor 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 zina yep luda and it looks like everyone else's name is yuri there are three yuris (laughs) and i'm glad you went to yuri because next up we've got yuri yudin okay so I'm looking at the notes page right now. Sorry for the listeners if you're not. Yuri Yudin has an asterisk next to his name. Yes, he does. Very okay. good. Uh, good. Uh, no one else does. <laughs> yeah, good note. Now and he, he looks, he, he's a wild look in his eye. Yeah, he's got, uh, he's basically, Yuri Yudin, um, he's one of the three Yuris. He always had good humor. He was kind of like the, fu- he was funny, good humor. Class clown kind of guy. Class clown, class clown kind of guy. There's a couple of those, but... Something about Yuri that's important to note, and the reason he has an asterisk, is because he had suffered lifelong problems with rheumatism. Uh, he also had a heart condition. What is rheumatism? It's like for our fans that may like not know. Arthrite. Of course, I know, but because <laughs> you're so—I mean, you're wearing glasses. Yeah. Uh, so you know most. Spoilers. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Uh, so like arthritis. So he had ah. like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, basically, he would he, he would have a lot of like chronic joint pain. He also had a heart condition and chronic knee and back pain. So, and so he was like, let's ski in the winter in Siberia. Yeah, that's because that's what they did. <laughs> like, that's how they, he was like, yo, I'm like put together with like bandages and bubble gum and stuff. <laughs> but like, I can't wait his to like, like is attached to miles. his ACL with a paperclip. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's why he has the asterisk because he's the only survivor of the group. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing, foreshadowing. Wait, you said he survived? That's, that's right. That's what I said. And we'll get into that. Okay. Wow. The the guy whose body is falling apart is the one that survived. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll we'll <laughs> we'll explain. All right. So besides Igor, Zuna, Luda, and Yudin, there were five others. You had Yuri Doroshenko. He was impulsive and brave, and he had a mythic nature about him because one time they were off on a hike and he chased off a bear on a camping trip with nothing more than his nerve and a geologist's hammer. What's a geologist hammer? It's one of those like little like rock. Oh, hand, nothing. You know? It has no business fighting a bear. No, 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 no. A bear. <laughs> if he, if the bear would like mess you up. Yeah. If if the bear. Like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So he's like, also every, okay. I don't know what the badass like meter is because it's it Russia, just keeps so going up. It's just like <laughs> you get shot in the leg. Like, this guy's pretty badass, you, and then the next guy's more. Badass. Yeah. It's and like because it's Russia in the winter. It's a very like, high bar. Imagine like. Seeing these kids in high school and you know everything about them and you're like, what is this group? I would think this is the Illuminati. <laughs> right, that's true. Yeah, you're like, some some about these people are like, these are all very... Well, they have direct contact with like a demigod or right. something. Well, that makes me wonder, is it like, or is that just normal there for 1959? Like everybody was like, oh yeah, you got shot and walked 50 miles? Sick. I like like fought three <laughs> bears last weekend at my like, <laughs> uncle's place. It was like... So, I wouldn't mess with anyone from 1950s Russia. So now we got Igor, Zena, Luda... 
Yuri Yudin and Yuri Doroshenko. We got mm-hmm. five, right? On to number six. So next we've got Yuri Krivonoshenko or Georgie. So Krivonoshenko is different than Doroshenko. Right. And they just call him Georgie. Yeah. So he has got some ears on him. Yeah, that dude. Yeah, he's got a he's got big old ears. Uh, he was the group's resident jester and musician, always ready with wise cracks and a mandolin. Right? <laughs> so, that's the guy you want in your group. Right. He's he's the guy like he's playing the mandolin. He's but, the like, glue guy. This is at a time where like that's not you're not an annoying person for doing mandolin's that. Mandolin's dope. Because like <laughs> that's like that's what is the only form of mandolin's entertainment cool. in Russia. Yeah. Yeah, he was like, he's really lucky he was born. Like, on the campsite, if you don't have a guy playing mandolin, you're all going nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone's like, oh, man, I'm so bored. Where's uh, that one instrument that, like, two people know how to play now? Yes. <laughs> Up next, we've got Alexander Kolevatov. Kolevatov was a medical, or a methodical young man with an imposing physical presence. So, what is, is that just, I feel like that's writer talk for saying he's tall. Yeah, he's tall and strong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he studied nuclear physics. Um, he was very private and reluctant to share his journal entries with the rest of the group. And he wouldn't, he, you know, he was very reserved. Okay. So you got Georgie's like the bard playing his mandolin. And mm-hmm. then you got Kalevatov who's like, I'm a, let you do, I'm gonna let you do that. I'm a write like poetry in my diary. Okay. Right. Then we've got rustic Slobodin. So he was the group rich kid. He was the son of an affluent university professor and had already earned his degree in medical, uh, mechanical engineering. So he was the rich kid, but he wasn't like, like he wasn't like a like a, a jerk about it. You know, he was yeah. he was like a cool guy. He just happened to be rich. Cool guy, rich kid. Yeah, he was rich kid, cool guy. Was his Twitter handle? Ooh, yeah. And uh, he also has mandolin guy. Yeah, <laughs> mandolin, mandolin guy too. Because mandolin pa- well, guy he's, one he's, was taken. Georgie, by Georgie is <laughs> at Zena with pants. So, <laughs> lastly, we've got Nikolai Tebow Brignolls. No, we have two more guys. No, no, no. I'll oh, get to it. Sorry. Nine hikers leave, but there's ten. Dead? Nine dead, ten hikers total. Nine of them are from college. We'll get to it. So Nikolai Thibault Brignoli. <laughs> Brignolis. <laughs> uh, he went by Kolya. He was a his his great he was a great grandson of a French immigrant. Uh, who immigrated to Russia in the 1880s, which I don't, I mean, France must have been bad in the 1880s to be like, let's go to that really cold Eastern Russia, yeah, right? <laughs> like, I don't know what was going on in France, but... Prosperity. So, yeah, Kolya had earned, already earned his degree, industrial civil construction. Uh, he was very well read and serious, but he always looked for humor in any situation. Good, because right? France was... Just- was not cutting it. Right. They're in France. They're like, no one here even plays the mandolin. <laughs> yeah, they're like, everyone's playing like, I don't know what a French instrument is off the top of my head right now. So we've met all the characters, right? They're all getting ready. Basically, what they wanted to do with this hike, they're, like one of the main reasons they're doing this hike is that they're all currently grade two hikers and they want to become grade three hikers, right? So Now, do you have to do this in the winter to become a grade three hiker? Well, so here, I've got the... <laughs> I've got the explanation of what makes a grade three hiker. It involves having to hike. uh, You have to cover at least 186 miles of ground with a third of those miles in challenging terrain, which is hilarious because you're in the dead of winter in like right before Siberia. So in my mind, every terrain is challenging. All of it. Yeah, it's just so Main uh, Street in Moscow during the winter sounds like horrible. (laughs) It sounds like somewhere I'd never want to be in my entire life. So 186 miles uh, in a third of it in challenging terrain, right? Mm-hmm. 
they return, they basically become masters of the craft, which allows them to like teach others the art of ski hiking. Okay, yeah. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's basically like to prove it's like it's like the black belt of hiking, right? Yeah. So this is how they ascend to the next level. So they are like, all right, let's do it. And on January twenty third, they depart from um Sverdlovsk to the city of Serov. So on that map, you'll see a little Yeah, I'm looking at it. Yeah, they take the train um to the they have like a bus at their campus and they take it over to a train. So they're going from the southern city? Yep, they're going from south to north. Okay. Basically they're on the train and then a newcomer appears. A new a new, new challenger a, approaches. A new challenger approaches. It happened to be an acquaintance of Igor's who had asked to tag a lawn in the last minute uh, because basically his group, it kind of dis- dissolved. Oh, fuck this guy. <laughs> so this is like right out of a horror movie. Right. Isn't and this, this like a guy lawn? who's like, oh, yeah, you didn't just go insane for the time right. period since I last saw you. So his name is Alexander Semyon Zolotaryov, ah. but his nickname is Sasha. Mm-hmm. And... This dude was 37. <laughs> Wait. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds old. <laughs> yeah, it's it's cool. I mean, compared to the rest of them, he is he's much older. Um, was that weird then? I that, that's the thing I was thinking. I was like, if I don't I know. If I was like with my friends in college and one of them was like, "Oh, hey, look, it's my <laughs> friend and it's a 37-year-old guy yeah. who none of us know." Yeah, and he's just tatted up ex-marine, well, not marine, but ex-soldier. Um and he basically, Sasha Zolotaryov, uh, was so, intended to set off with a student hiker, um, and they're headed into the subpolar Urals, but then the timetable didn't suit him well. Um, so then he got introduced to Igor I hate and this. his group. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah the alarm I, bells immediately. Uh, in my yeah, head. there's I was like, red flags. Yeah, uh, right. Like Siberia winter is right. a big red flag. Um, Guy yep. who has like his body doesn't work because of rheumatoid <laughs> arthritis. That's a red flag. Yep. Um, and then a thirty-seven-year-old man with gold teeth shows up. Yeah, <laughs> he has gold teeth, by the way. That's like the biggest red flag. Yep. He had a. That's like a like the flags you see at the fire stations that are huge. That's a big <laughs> red flag. Yep. Exactly. So also he had a tattoo of beets. <laughs> Like the vegetable, <laughs> the, yeah, like the vegetable, not Beats by Dre because this is nineteen fifty nine. Like yeah, the vegetable, like Dwight Schrute, like yeah, exactly. He like rolled up from Schrute Farms <laughs> with gold teeth, inked up, and he got an ink of beets. Is that like a tough imagery in Russia? <laughs> I time? don't know. I don't know. People what... now get like eagles and tigers and stuff, yeah. and like he gets. He's beets. like, yo, this this crop right here, <laughs> bruh. So he's got. I beets. was gonna get a turnip, but I didn't want it to seem too hard. <laughs> Gotta get a job. Yeah. So he, uh, he's got beat tattoos and gold teeth and at a time where tattoos were very like not the norm. So this dude is a character. (laughs) That's yeah. Even added. He just rolls up. He's like, Hey, this is perfect. I'm going to join your group. I really Um, hope at least one person in the group was like, is this, yeah, I hope someone's like, Hey, someone questioned it. I hope one person did. Um, what? Yeah. So that happens. Uh, and everyone's like, cool welcome aboard yeah we're in um and then a nice interesting quote from that night found it written in their diary in one of the diaries whose diary uh uh, this is xena's okay uh this is the diary entry on the train from ivdel 
or to Ivdel from Yekaterinburg. Those well, are cities. Svedlovsk. Yeah. Well, okay. Yekaterinburg is the modern name for Svedlovsk. It's the post uh, USSR, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Svedlovsk on the train that night. She writes, I wonder what awaits us in this hike. Will anything new happen? Question mark. Like, <laughs> what does that mean? It's well, so she writes that she continues. I kind of question if that's like romantic. If she liked one of the guys and she's saying it like that, but like, or when, no, the girl, I don't judge. Even the context, it's like so eerie. It's like, shit. Will anything new happen? I wonder what awaits us. It's like, ooh. She goes on to say, oh, yes, the boys have given a solemn oath to smoke, to not smoke the whole trip. I wonder how strong their willpower is. Will they manage without cigarettes? We are going to sleep and Ural Woods loom behind the windows. So they follow this train and they eventually get to Ivdel. It's a, a city. It is a city. Yep. We're almost to Dyatlov Pass. Yep. Um, so I'm going to kind of jump here. Where yeah. they're not on their way. I'm kind of following what Donnie Eicher's book did because it's Donnie Donnie it, it's it's there's so much info. It's kind of tough to do it in this. I'm just gonna follow this order. So it's like a jump it forward. Yeah. So now we're now it's in February, and the group has been hasn't been heard from. And they haven't returned on the date that they were supposed to. Right. Yeah. So Missing. Igor Dyatlov's younger sister Rufina is 21 years old. Uh, she's a pretty version of her brother. She goes basically to the campus like office and is like my brother has returned can we like can we do something can about it can someone do anything yeah so basically Fe- this is february 16th three days after the group was supposed to return home uh and nobody seemed very worried from the administration of the school they're all like hey man it's russia in winter like what'd you expect like they'll be late <laughs> <laughs> like they'd have no they are not sensitive to her plane. You jump in a shark's mouth, you know. Right. So another reason that they were like probably not concerned is that the the hiking commission thoroughly checked the soundness of Igor's proposed route and delays are routine in Russia in the winter, right? They're like, nah, we don't have to worry about anything. Everyone thinks it's just late. Delays happen. Uh, if one hiker like sprains an ankle, the entire trip would be slowed, etc. They have all these excuses as to like, hey, we're not going to look into this because, you know, this this could happen all the time. Yeah. If we go back to February 13th, three days earlier, on the day of the Dyatlov's group's uh, appointed return, uh, and in the following days, family members of the hikers begin to express their worry. The parents of Rustic Slobodin uh, are the first to express our concerned uh, Rustic's father, Professor Vladimir Slobodin, who teaches at the local agricultural university, basically called up the sports club, which is like the athletic department of the yeah. college, and basically at that's the point in which Lev Gordo who is the head director of athletics. He's on a trip and he won't be returning for several days. Convenient. Right. <laughs> so, and they were saying until Lev Gordo returns, uh, little can be done. So That's to summarize, the only person who can do anything to go look for these missing kids is gone. Yeah. And so <laughs> it delays anything happening. Yep. So two more days go by. Yep. And other, so the university's telephone starts ringing with more calls from nervous relatives uh, they're told variations of the same thing, uh, that the group is delayed, the president of the club isn't around, nothing can be done at the moment, please be patient, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But the parents of the hikers are like, bro, these are our kids. Like, <laughs> we're yeah. freaking out here. So on February 17th, after bowing to the pressure from all the calls from the relatives, university officials send an inquiring telegram to Vijay, the village from which the Atlov group would be traveling. 
Uh, meanwhile, the families make requests to the university for search planes, but the university says no. Like, <laughs> so, Got him. Yeah, so like, hey, we already sent messages. We don't need to do search planes. We're not going to do that right now. So then the next day, February 18th, Alev Gordo returns. All right, so the athletic director is back, and he is now being informed of all the, the shitstorm that has what a way to come back from vacation. Right? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I was like, that sucks. Because I know, like, I dread email when I get back to work after, like, being yeah, up a week. Yeah, it's like, just, oh, like, a normal thing. Suck. And just to get back and be like, hey, um, nine of your students are probably dead. Yeah, they're just gone. They haven't returned. So a reply telegram comes back on that day from Vichay saying the Dyatlov group did not return. That's nope. all the... Telegram says real. So Vichay's like the city that's the base camp. Where yeah, basically from. they're like that was their like last stop. They went up they to the Dyatlov, actually. Dyatlov Pass and wait. So the Dyatlov, it's called the Dyatlov Pass. This is after the fact. So okay, the, I was the, like, wait, yeah, yeah, Igor's yeah. name is. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, this was named after the group after it happened. Okay, cool. But Vijay was their last like actual outpost before they. Yeah, they got to Stepan. Mm-hmm. So basically, after they get this message back. That's when they're like, okay, I guess we actually have to do something as a university. So, Georgi Ortukov, a lecturer of reserve officer training. Yeah, let's the, get him into the plot line. <laughs> yeah, let's get more. There's like a lot of players in this that all have Eastern yeah, European names. Sorry, listeners. Just try to keep up. Uh, just It's tough. Why do they all name the same names? <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Throw in an Aiden. So, basically, this guy... So they call in this lecture of reserve officer training at the college. He takes charge of assembling a formal search party for the missing hikers. Lev Gordo, mm-hmm. uh, together with UPI student Yori Blinov, another Yori. Let's get another Yori. Who was actually in a group that shadowed Dyatlov's uh, on the first leg of the trip. So they mm-hmm. kind of followed their route. So they kind of knew what was happening. Yeah, they didn't go on like an extreme thing like the Dyatlov group. They just kind of followed what they did. So and they're the they... closest to the case. Right, right, right. right. So then, then they went off on their own thing and then came back to school. Okay. Um, but basically him and the head of the athletic department, Lev Gordo, are assigned to travel the following days to Ivdel, the gateway to the Northern Urals, mm-hmm. so they can start searching because this Yuri Blinov would have a good idea as to like the general area uh, to where they went from yeah. shadowing the group, right? Mm-hmm. Friday, February 20th, the search for the missing hikers officially begins. So uh, almost a month after they departed. Yeah, this is now coming up on like almost a month. Yeah, like three days. before. So these kids have been missing for almost a month. Well, they've, they haven't been missing for almost a month because technically they're, they're, they were supposed to come back on like the 16th of February. Oh, okay. So, so it's only really been four days. It's really been four days extra. Okay, that makes more so sense. So people are still like, you know, it's... You it's know, still a good amount of it's time. It's a gray area because look where they went and it could just take them a long time to get back. And, they, you know, so people aren't like... They're not like everyone's dead. They're like, hey, we just got to figure out where, where they are so we can get these parents off our backs, basically. Yeah, yeah. Gordo and Blinov fly out from Sverdlov by military helicopter and arrive later that day in Ivdel. From there, they take a Yak-12 surveillance plane north t- towards Vigier. I thought you were going to end at Yak, no. and I was so excited. <laughs> they hopped on a Yak. And got to kick and, it. And they're like, let's find these kids. So they go up the Loja River over an abandoned mine and pass Sector 41, <sighs> which is like, <laughs> everything about it is just like, cre- like they can't have regions <sighs> named Sector. Let me tell you something, loyal listener. <laughs> There's one place you don't want to end up. Sector 41. Sector 41. <laughs> any, actually, any sector at all. Sector anything sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah, any sector followed by a number, that's a bad place it's, to be. Any sector, I instantly think it was sanctioned off by the military because there's paranormal stuff going on. Yeah, so that's like a cluster of log cabins populated by woodworkers. 
they're just like a village of like woodcutters that just hang out and it's called sector 41 uh they then go west toward severnaya toshenka river where the pair scan the ural ridge and western ural slopes but before they can get far clouds and strong winds force them to turn back to the airfield for the night so they basically like start to get out there and then bad weather happens and they're like all right we, we can't do this today no uh the same day that they're scanning in, in the northern Urals by air. Uh, Yuri Yudin has returned to Sverdlovsk for the new school term because he was assumed to be among the Dyatlov group. Wait. Yeah, yeah, Yuri Yudin. He's this back. Asterisk guy is back at school. And this... So rheumatoid arthritis guy <laughs> yeah. goes hiking and just comes back without anyone and starts going to school like nothing happened? Yeah. And here's what happens. Well, this is the explanation. He was assumed. Okay, so he was assumed to be with the Dyatlov group. His peers were surprised to see his face, as you and I would be. Yeah, I'm surprised <laughs> to see his face. I can't even see it. Yeah, and he is put in the position of explaining his uh, peculiar non-absence during the trip. Yudin's chronic back pain had reached incapacitating levels, forcing him to turn back early. But instead of returning directly to Sverdlovsk, Yudin had taken a detour to spend the rest of the winter break in his home village, Emelyashevka. He went back to his hometown, which is about 150 miles northeast of Sverdlovsk, uh, and there he took his time and enjoyed the company of his family, unaware of what happened to the rest of the group. So basically, they got out there, and he was like, yo, guys, I, See you later. I literally can't, like, I can't, like, go with you guys. My back's killing me. Uh, I gotta go. Okay. And then, he, instead of going straight back to school, he went to his hometown and hung out with his family for a bit, because it was like basically on the way back to school and he's like i might mm-hmm. as well spend the rest of this like time i got with yep. my fam okay so decent decent alibi as to why he was not there he also knows that igor and the rest were running three days behind uh, a fact that you didn't realize he had forgot to relay by telegram to the university so now the original three days of delay has become six he was supposed to like let them know hey they're gonna be three days behind anyway so mm-hmm. don't freak out if it's like three days later but now at this point we have doubled that time we just sure. remember this six days later the next day so that was on the same day that gordo and blinov were flying around trying to find the guys but the bad weather happened right mm-hmm. so the next day uh they're in the air again and the weather has greatly improved since the previous day they fly to vijay riverhead and over the anchula tributary uh so they're flying around but yeah, so they're flying around looking for... Looking for the group. Looking for any signs of the group. In the area of the Detlov Pass. Right, Detlov. right. And the area they're in on this day is the territory of the region's indigenous people, the Mansi. The Mansi are the original... They're the indigenous... Is this people. their burial ground or something? <laughs> are you going to tell me that? Don't tell me that. I'm not going to tell you that, but what I am going to say is there's a lot of theory about the Mansi and this case. Because so they're like the native peoples of this area. Right. The Mansi occupy sections of the Urals in northwestern Siberia. Their numbers are small, uh, and they live in villages whose economies revolve around hunting, fishing, and herding of reindeer. That's cool. So how do they play into this? So basically, uh, Gordo and Blinov approach a Mansi village, uh, which is just like a cluster. So Gordo and Blinov are kind of like our heroes right now, looking for everyone. Yeah, they're like out trying to find them. So everyone's gone. Gordo and Blinov, two two guys. Uh, head, Head of athletics and the guy who shouted them. Shout out the Dyatlov group. Okay, yes. Right. They are on a plane yep. looking for people, so they're approaching a, um, an indig- a Mansi group. Uh, yeah, they're going to a village of the indigenous people because they're going to like try and find out if there's any, like, if they know anything or have seen kids or, you know. Yeah, okay. They're like, hey, 
you're indigenous to this area where there are strangers here can you give us some kind of clue did you see anything yeah right uh so mansi villages are clusters of traditional yurts uh they use reindeer uh hides to insulate so these are very primitive you know they're not like modernized in any way they're very indigenous very primitive Mm -hmm. kind of living off the land kind of thing right so the two men learn that a group of student hikers had stopped for tea in the village several weeks before they were the guests of tribesman peter balyarov uh something to note is the mansi have russian names just the same as you know modern russian people yeah uh and the hikers stay was reportedly brief and after they finished their tea the group moved on electing not to stay the night so that's basically all they got out of the mansi they then take off on the plane again west to the urals they're able to make out tracks of mansi's sleigh below them when they're flying over the west of the urals they basically conclude that a what's one of the mansi natives it's a courtesy to like see off departed guests so they're thinking that like they hopped on a sleigh with the mansi people and someone kind of got them on their way right that's heading toward the Ural Mountains, but the track stops short of the tree line, and from there, any trace of the night hikers seems to dissolve into the wild. They're now like, okay, well, we uh, we didn't, I mean, we got a little bit of info from these Mansi, but we didn't really get necessarily Just info. tea and stayed a while, then saw them off. Right. So they didn't really get what... Or drugged them and dumped their bodies. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I'm not jumping to conclusions, but that's my conclusion. That's your conclusion to. right now. So, okay, so should we do like a sum up so far? Yeah, we can. Let's summarize because there's been a lot of names. Yeah, there's been a lot of names and a lot of places and stuff. Tough, yeah. There's a lot of locations that you can ignore. Okay, mm-hmm. like all the rivers and like general. Just know that they they left college. They left the college. They went missing. Then parents are calling the schools. Lev Gordo, athletic director, was on vacation. He comes back. He gets all this news that like these kids are missing and we got to find them. So he takes the last person to see the group, which is Blenov. And they both hop on a plane and start doing the search and rescue mission, right? Mm-hmm. They land. They go to a Mansi village. The Mansi are like, hey, we hung out with a bunch of college students. We sent them on their way. <laughs> it was sick. <laughs> it was sick. There was kegs. Mobaba was playing. <laughs> now, um, and also Yuri Yudin returned to school, which was weird. Yeah, right. what a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that guy. Well, actually, no, I feel bad for him because he has the body of an 80-year-old man, but... Yeah, right. He's, he's, <laughs> he's not living an easy life to begin with. He was just seeing his family. Right. So Allegedly. February 20th, the same day the search helicopter is dispatched from Sverdlovsk with Blinov and Lev Gordo, uh, the Igvdel prosecutor's office orders a criminal investigation into the case of the many missing hikers. Ooh, now it's a case. There's nothing, nothing yet criminal to investigate, but the purview of the office goes beyond the strictly criminal. The regional prosecutor, whose name I won't say just for sake of keeping things simpler, sends out like an investigator and they're like, okay, this now we're going to make this like a criminal case so that we can use the resources of what you can use in a criminal case to help find these kids. Also at that time, the sports committee of Sverdlovsk, which is the main, you know, where the, the university, yeah. Yeah, university, they're trying to determine the route so that they can relay information to the search teams because they now have started a search part. They have search parties now. They're like, people are like, they're getting volunteers. This is a full-blown... Yeah, this has uh, become a full-blown... Thing. Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, hey, let's try and get as much information so we can relay out to our to these people who are searching for these kids. But because uh, Igor Dyatlov's intended course was not formed in the hiking commission's files, the committee will have to track down someone acquainted with the group's journey. 
Not realizing that one of the hikers, Yuriudin, has since returned to town, the committee oh turns God. to the only man who believe can help, Yevgeny Maslenikov. Now, you can remember Yevgeny's name, okay? Because he's going to basically become the leader of the search party. Even though there's a much more qualified leader of a search party who they just don't know is there. Yeah, they Yuri just didn't, they didn't realize the he were, was there. Yeah, they didn't realize that the, one of the members of the party is back on campus. So now Denny is going to leave. Yeah, so now Yevgeny... Oh, sorry. What's his name? Yevgeny. Yevgeny. So Yevgeny is like, all right, he's a chief mechanical engineer at the local metal mill, uh, and he's a distinguished alumni of the college. He is also one of the best backcountry skiers in the city. So they like, of course. this is like, you've never heard of yeah. Yevgeny, <laughs> Yevgeny Maslinovkov. He's a legend in some circles. It's basically like them, like going to like the old retired grizzled veteran and be like, we need you one last time. This whole thing is, um, uh, I know there is a movie of it, but yeah. this is it's a, a movie. movie. Yeah. That's why it's like, he's it's, the guy who's going to hunt the shark. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like we're going to catch the Meg. Yeah. So Yevgeny is like. Um, he's, he's also a consultant to the, to the skiing hiking club because mm-hmm. he's such a good skier. And actually Igor Dyatlov, uh, had him, had Yevgeny personally sign off on a proposed course into the mountains. This one or yeah, a different this, one? this, this, this one, this, he so was, he's the only one who knows cause he signed off right, on it. Right. He, basically Igor was like, Hey, do you think this route is going to work? And Yevgeny was like, yeah, that should be fine. Sounds like he blew it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So Yevgeny gets a call. He's surprised to learn that Igor and his friends have not yet returned. And he says, in quote, I told him what I knew about their route. I said that the route was hard, but the group was strong. They couldn't lose their way. And therefore, the situation is critical. So he's like, yo, this should have been a piece of cake for these guys. And the fact that they're not back is like a big alarming. Yeah, it's very alarming. So fast forward to February 23rd, the day after Gordo and Blinov visit the village. Several of the Mansi tribesmen join the search effort. Uh, their help is essential because they know the mountains intimately, and the group is led by this like head Mansi guy, Stepan Kurikov. Stepan. Stepan. S T E P E P A N. Stepan. That's a cool name. Yeah. So Stepan's like the head of the Mansi's. So now we got the two guys in the airplane. We've got Lev Gordo. Lev and Gordo. Oh, no, we got Lev Gordo. That's oh, one sorry. Guy. So Lev Gordo. And uh, Yuri Blinov. And Yuri Blinov are the two plane they're, guys. They're, two, they're in the air, right? They're the Air so Force. I, in my head, I'm, de- I'm defining this as two airplane guys from the college. Yep, two airplane guys from the college. A Mansi chief. A Mansi chief who's out there like, hey, I know this land. I'll help you guys out. And Yevgeny, the world's most famous backcountry skier. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's the cast of characters looking for these kids. Okay. Right. So Stepan is a respected elder of the people. So he's like, yo, I'll help you guys out. I know this area. Let's let's get it. So February 24th, there is now an escalation of the search efforts because they're like, we can't find these kids. And everyone's starting to be like, this is Something not going to turn out well. Yeah, so this is not going to turn out well. So the 24th, uh, there's now boots hitting the ground. There's UPI students, family members, local officials, and volunteers from the surrounding work camps. Nearly 30 searchers fan out over the snowy topography to try and find these kids. So, okay, so we have to be getting close to when we're going to find these kids, right? Yeah, right. So now everyone they have everyone is now gone from the it's, college, and they're on the front lines trying to find these kids in the woods, right? It's, yeah, they're at level midnight yeah, at exactly. this point. DEFCON right. 5. So on the 25th, the day after the Mansi chief joined, a note is dropped to one of the groups that are searching for the kids oh from the air saying that the party should al- the search party should alter its route and begins searching along a smaller uh, river, the Ospia, 
where ski tracks were recently spotted. Oh, so this is someone searching as well from the plane. Yeah, so there's a, a plane, sees ski okay. tracks, drops. See, when you said that, I thought a snow came out of the sky being like, the bodies are here. <laughs> and I was like, no, that no, 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 is no. Yeah, that would be insane. that would be insanity. <laughs> this would be the nuttiest true story of all time, and everybody would know it. Yeah, <laughs> no. So that's how they basically back in the fifties they had no like the, well there was a ban on shortwave radios, so they had to drop notes with like rocks on them. Out yeah, of planes <laughs> to like that's how they. If they had not banned these technologies, this search would have been so much. Yeah, funnier. general communication sounds <laughs> very difficult. Right. So they say, hey, we we spotted some tracks. Uh, by a river traps go find them why don't you yeah start going in this direction so the team uh they changed the course and the same day not only did they pick up on the ski trail but also evidence of one of their campsites along the river so like oh shit we're kind of we're getting close we're getting close uh they just find like a old campsite so like burnt out fire yeah yeah, yeah. they're like oh people were here recently yeah well relatively so in some point on the afternoon, on February 26th, the tent is found. The tent? They were all sharing mm-hmm. one tent? Yeah. It's a huge tent. Oh, okay. It's like a really big tent. Is there a picture like, of it on here? Uh, there is a picture, but you can't really tell the size of it because it's like from when it was ripped up. There's all, So basically, the last picture they took is on there, and that's of them setting up the camp. Is like one of the last photos taken. You can see it, right? Which one is it? It's uh the... It's oh, like, it's like a bunch of people. Yeah, they're like setting, yeah. sticking up. Yeah, sticking up, and they're like, yeah, that's cold. Kinda. Yeah, it's. <laughs> it's <laughs> so if you're listening, um, for if you're one of the millions of listeners who <laughs> is listening in their car, um, it's uh like everyone and a bunch of skis sticking out, and it looks like like a whiteout, like a blizzard. Yeah, and that's literally the conditions all the time. Like that's and all. Someone's taking a picture, and clearly uh, one of the other people is like why the fuck are you taking a picture <laughs> yeah, come help, help set up camp <laughs> and they're like but this is gonna go on my insta <laughs> all right so at some point in the afternoon uh they see something this what the f- there's a horrifying noise coming all from right, the kitchen right on. now i gotta investigate what this noise is. i hate this why does this have to happen while we're doing this why are we doing it in the haunted mansion okay so it's just me right now and darcy left and now i'm really scared so essentially, I uh, so a fan just turned on by itself in Darcy's horrifying house of horrors, where we don't usually do this here. We're going to be doing it in like a modern, um, not haunted home, but that's the scariest thing I've ever heard. Um, so if this podcast is the last will and testament we have, uh, nobody touch my stuff. Uh, if you need to find our Wait, bodies, I, drop a note from a helicopter. Yeah, yeah, get the crew in. <laughs> All here. right, get uh, get Ig, Igveni, Igveni, Igveni. You've you've given Igveni. He'll know. Yeah, he'll know. Um, um there there's some bad electricals. So, the search party they're quoted as saying, "I noticed a black spot that was actually part of a tent." Um, and the young men hurry towards the spot as quickly as the wind and deep snow will allow them. The tent's poles are still vertical, with the south-facing entrance still standing. But recent snowfall has covered much of the tarpaulin, causing part of it to collapse. The tarpaulin? The, 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 How is it covered? The tent. So Dang tarpaulin. So snow is now covering the tent because in the interim between the tent being found and, you know, it snowed. So it's kind of now caving in a little bit from snow. Yeah, the tarpaulin. Right. 
um, causing part of it to collapse, though it is not immediately clear whether it is the result of a storm or of wind redistributing the surrounding snow. The men call out but receive no answer. There is an ice axe near the front of the tent. Like they're just yelling at the tent? Well, they're just yelling like around like, hey. Oh, okay. Hey, d love group. <laughs> is anyone in there? <laughs> Get out. I, I'm supposed to knock, but it's so hard with this fabric. <laughs> um, so hard when the tarpaulin's all covered. <laughs> so they're calling out, and then there's an ice there's an ice axe near the front of the tent sticking out of the snow, but there's also a partially buried Chinese torch, which is like a flashlight. More oh, or less. okay. That's I was called, like, what? I, the Chinese I, were here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't the know. plot thickens. Yeah, yeah. Basically left on the on position. So they retrieve the axe, and he rips open the tent with the axe. Real solid <laughs> CSI work right there. Of just yeah, like, what? Up to a crime just scene. ripping into it. And just ripping into this. Uh, Tarpulent. So as they're scanning the surrounding area, snow begins to fall, and they realize it's probably too late to search the area. So before heading back to camp, they gather items that may prove useful to the search party. A jacket, a camera, medical alcohol, a pair of skis, Igor's Chinese torch, a.k.a. flashlight, and the ice axe. So they like grab the stuff. They're like, it's getting late. We, got, we, can, we don't have time right now to actually search the place. The main search party? Yeah, this is the search party that found it. Okay. So they're like, let's get back to the others. So word of the tent quickly spreads amongst the search groups and the next day multiple search teams arrive on the eastern slope of the mountain to begin a more intensive search besides the team that found it there is a group headed by Yevgeny so Yevgeny now rolls up to the scene he's the the ski hiker that approved the route right and basically a local police captain is there with him mm-hmm. and some Mansi volunteers and then there's you know all, so basically all the volunteers are starting to come to the tent because they found it right yeah it's like ground zero for this investigation which i totally understand for the volunteers and like all the groups being like oh my god we gotta see it but at the same time you were like destroying this like crime scene yeah Yeah. like you have well they have 30 people wandering they don't have a tight right csi going on in no not eastern in eastern russia Russia. but at the same time you've now got 30 people like touching it and like yeah probably (laughs) much harder to track at this point the police chief that was there Describe the scene as chaotic, <laughs> and that in hindsight should have been left to experienced investigators. <laughs> so that guy knows what he's talking about. So, but the problem was was that the lead prosecutor on the case had not yet arrived, and the searchers see no points. Screw wh- him, dude. We have Yevgeny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's gonna go find every single one of these kids. So they see no point. The rest of the group is like, why would we waste time with procedural formalities? Let's find these hikers alive and bring them home. So they pick over the tent and the co- they pick over the tent and its contents for clues and policemen with search dogs. The tent and its tent. Yeah, they they search the tent Content. and the tarpaulin. Yeah, for the tar- clues. Yeah. And policemen with search dogs come and they're like, "Let's get this thing into full swang." Unfortunately, there are no discernible tracks in the surrounding snow for the dog teams to follow. Uh, this is probably because of the incline on the slope that the tent was found and the wind having swept away any traces of footsteps. So that kind of makes this entire thing way harder. Like, you don't know if there was a track of an animal or a footprint or... So, like, it's all been swept away. There has been evidence of the hiker's prints. Um, However, because of all the people swarming the tent and touching it, they've been obliterated. Like, there's no... (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So... Well, not amazing in, like, a good way. Amazing in, like, a... There was so little foresight involved in any part of this operation. Right. So, however, farther down the slope, 
Where Let's the, go down the slope a little bit. Yeah, where the land levels out, one of the teams picks up impressions in the hardened snowpack about 20 yards away from the tent. There are multiple sets of footprints that have remained preserved. Some of the prints are large, others are smaller and less distinct, as if the person who left had not been wearing shoes. The investigators count nine sets of prints, extending for nearly half a mile towards the river valley. The tracks are split into two parallel paths, continuing toward the valley before merging again. The searchers follow these footprints until they find a patch of freshly fallen snow, at which point the prints disappear, but the searchers continue on, hoping to pick up the trail again. Meanwhile, about a mile away, another member of that main group that found the tent Mm -hmm. um, are scouting an area suitable for camp. Basically, with all for these, them, yeah, this is that. So they're looking. So to they're make building a camp, a camp for the search party. Yeah. Uh, they need a place to sleep now because there's so many, there's so many people there, and like everyone's like trying to find a place that's like away from the crime scene to like start sleeping. Yeah. As they're going to find their own spot for a tent, they come across a spot that doesn't seem quite right. Beneath a large cedar tree, they notice charred cedar boughs, boughs, bow, boughs, like cedar, like wood. I, see, when you said that, I thought like a B-O- bow and arrow bow no. made out of cedar. <laughs> cedar, B-O-U-G-H-S. I I assume it means like... <laughs> seeds? Cedar... Are they like the the trunk, the seeds? I don't know. What? Why don't we Google it about? Yeah, I'm going to bring it up. <laughs> I, this, I mean, this is a big part of the story, ladies and gentlemen. We're college educated, but... It's like literally just like a, like a little bushel of cedar stuff. Okay. Oh, so it's like the like pine needles, or is it like yeah? So cedar is like a, an evergreen, and it's like a little bushel. Like if you okay. cut off the top of your Christmas tree, okay. it would look I like a cedar. You, bow. You. Okay. So they're partially buried in the snow. As they draw closer, they find what looks like traces of a fire pit. The haphazard nature of the pit tells them that this was not a proper campsite. Nor does it appear to be the remains of a Mansi fire. It's Mansi as the Mansi tended to stick close to the woods and river to set their winter traps. Just north of the pit. One of the men points to something sticking out of the snow. As they draw closer, they find that is a human knee. Oh, ding ding I got ding! Chills. They're Whose like, "Yo, knee is it?" Yeah, they're like, "Yo, we gotta head back to camp and alert the others." <laughs> and they like actually oh, they do they this saw right. the knee and then yeah, just, the other bailed. <laughs> just started screaming and running away. Nope. <laughs> but so they're like, "Hey, let's not destroy the tent and destroy the screen." They don't want to just walk around and touch it. Yeah. <laughs> so. They go back. They grab Yevgeny, right? <laughs> they grab the dude. Yeah, the guy who knows what he's doing. Let's yeah. get him in here. So he heads over there, uh, and when they excavate the snow from around the exposed knee, they find not one body, but two lying side by side, both men. Do you see that? Regular people only found one Yevgeny. Yeah, Yevgeny, Yevgeny doubled. He doubled it. <laughs> That's a two-for-one Yevgeny special. Hey everybody, Scones and I recorded a little over three hours of unedited audio for this episode, so for the sake of consumability, we're going to split this episode up into two parts. The first part will be the search for the hikers, and part two will be the autopsy and theories surrounding the deaths. Be sure to check out part two wherever you get podcasts. Thank you for listening, and have a great Monday.